All right, ladies and gentlemen, good to see everybody here this morning and good to see the fellowship. We do need to start, though, because we have a lot of ground to cover today, so I thank you for being here. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5 if you want to find that text, and we'll have a word of prayer at the start. We'll read the verses, and then we're going to plunge in. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this last week that you have given to us, the watch care, the safety, the protection, the blessing. Thank you that you blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. And in addition to those spiritual blessings, we have so much that you've given to us and help us be grateful for that today. Lord, as we approach today, we thank you for the beautiful weather, but we also thank you for the Lord's Day and for the prospect it holds for us to grow in grace, for us to mutually encourage each other in Christian fellowship and to hear the word of God and to sing the songs of Zion. We just pray that you will bless us today in these services and bless each uh, congregant, bless each per person who has an, a different role, uh, a service role of some kind. We pray that you'll bless all of the ABF classes even now as they get underway and also the other classes. Bless every teacher, bless every listener. And Father, we just desire that the net result of our day would be a sense of experiencing your presence in a fresh way. Uh, and also, Lord, that <clears throat> we would bring honor and glory to you. Thank you for the book of First Peter and the time we've been able to spend in it. Uh, as it draws to a close, we no less need your help uh, in what we do today. And for that, we pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are in Lesson 12 of First Peter, and it brings us to the last section in the book. So remember, we've been working with the theme of Christ is sufficient in suffering, and we've seen that in the first section because he sustains us by his salvation. We've just completed the main center section of the book where we see that, where we see that because his example guides us. But now I, th I think something, this is a great way to end by looking at this idea of his humility inspires us. Humility, I think, has gotten to be like integrity. It's, it's so scarce that when you encounter it, it's very encouraging, it's very inspiring. And I hope that I'm successful, and if not, I hope that you will look for this and look for it in the notes or just look for it in asking the Lord to guide and direct you. But we see Christ in all of this. Everything that we're going to look at in these next three lessons, two of which I'm cramming into today because next Sunday is the last Sunday uh, for this, and I do want to be able to finish. But to look not just at the points that I've given to you, but behind the points, look for Christ. Because Christ is truly the inspiring uh, example of humility that we find, and each of us needs to grow in grace, but I suspect that humility is an area that probably we have the most room for growth in, don't you think? I think that's one of the things that comes, uh, it's one of the most difficult things for us to, to grow in in our Christian experience. And so today, um, we're looking at this last section. Let's read from verse number 1, and it would help if I got to 1 Peter and didn't read from James chapter 5. So, here we go. We're going to be reading down through verse 7. <clears throat> so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I've suggested there in this first point in the introduction that verse 5 of this chapter may serve as a good key verse if we're looking for that kind of thing. I think it really captures the heartbeat of what's before and what's after it. So let's look at that verse one more time. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he first of all starts up in verse 1 by addressing elders. And so we're going to be looking first in this first lesson at humility in service. But then it branches out and gets more broad in verse number 5 when he uses the phrase, all of you. So this is something all of us need to work on. And there we find humility in relationships, by the way, Uh, the other lesson is on the back of your handout. I came in this morning and saw that out there, one paper, and it scared the liver out of me, and I ran looking for Pastor Andrew. I I meant to tell you I I decided to save the paper and put one on the back. Uh, I was just really relieved because he's got his own Sunday school class to get to. So if you see me, if you see the PowerPoint a little different or occasionally, like here, missing a point that's on the study notes, Um, just overlook that. It's intentional. It's because we have a lot to do today, and I'm trying to move along. But as I mentioned, first of all, we have humility and service. Peter is addressing pastors. And um, so I think you've had lots of teaching and background in this church and understand that the word elder and the word pastor and the word bishop or overseer are all descriptive of the same person or office in the local church. So I don't see the word pastor here. Well, you just look at verse number two, and it says shepherd the flock, which is literally in the original language to pastor the flock. So it's used there. Then we're reminded when we get to verse four that Jesus is the chief shepherd. So he's the head pastor, really, if you want to think about it that way. And uh, it says taking the oversight in one of our verses. And that's the word for, that's episcopeo, that's the word for the bishop or the overseer. So this is one of those passages, as is Acts 20, which we won't take time to look at, Acts 20, verse 28, where these words are all used in the same verses so that it, it, it supports and unfolds the idea that these words are descriptive either by, in the title that they give of the office and what the person is supposed to do in the office, but it's, it's not different people. Um, and we don't really see much occasion for some of the hierarchical forms of church government that we're aware of where you have local ministers and then you have people that are higher up as bishops. That that doesn't seem to really find much place in Scripture. But at any rate, we're going to be looking, first of all, at humility in service and pointing to the fact, hopefully, that Christ is the model servant leader. So we start, first of all, with an example, but the example, even though it it's lurking in the background that I'm talking about here is not so much Christ. It's to see what Peter says about himself. If Peter is going to talk about humility, it's kind of like loose words and words that don't really have any foundation or 
example behind them if the person who's saying them doesn't exhibit the same thing. What I find is interesting about this is Peter is, is an apostle. He could have cited that. And not that there aren't occasions or reasons to do that, because you think about the fact that in many of Paul's letters, he was very careful to refer to himself as an apostle, particularly with the Corinthians, where he was backed into a corner that he really didn't care to be in, needing to defend his own authority. But Peter doesn't call on that here. He certainly could. By the way, he, he also, if this were true, he also could have described himself as the first pope. But he doesn't do that either, and that doesn't find any basis in the scripture anyway. But Peter calls himself a fellow elder, and it's, it's a sense of identifying himself with the people that he's speaking to so that it's not so much of preaching down or preaching to as much as exhorting fellow brothers who are occupying or, or doing the same job. And I think you appreciate that. I know I appreciate that. When, when we hear a message, there's a difference between preaching at someone or at people and exhorting them as a fellow believer. And even though you've been given the role maybe to stand behind the sacred desk and, and be the one doing that, you don't think of yourself more highly than the others. You think of yourself as one of. We're all cut out of the same bolt of Adamic cloth. We're all fallen in our, in our, in our original coming into this world. And, and so I think that's what Peter is doing here, and I think he's setting the right example. And I, he, also, though, he also, though, does bring out some other descriptive things which are important not so much to promote himself as much as to give a basis for the exhortations and a background for the exhortations. Notice what he says. Um, he says here that he is a, wit, uh, a fellow elder. He says also a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. And before that, he mentions being a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Well, this is kind of interesting because I think that what this does is this, this tends to cement. He says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, but I also am a sharer. I am also a participant. I also fellowship. It's the same word. In, in his, if to fellowship in his glory is also, or sufferings is also to have the expectation of sharing in his glory. And that's a point that Peter has been making. So go back to chapter 4 just briefly and look at that verse where that in this last section that we looked at, that was kind of the keynote thought that, yes, we are a partaker of Christ's sufferings, but that also leads us to be, for it to be very appropriate for God to make us fellow heirs and participants in Christ's glory. So in chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Same point he's making now. And then he says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So there's that idea. Now it's reinforced in chapter 5 verse 1 by Peter saying, I'm not only a fellow elder, but I'm a witness. I can bear testimony. Try to remember that in the New Testament when you have the word martus or witness, um, it isn't somebody who, you know, like if you, if you come up on an accident and you witness that accident, and you agree to stay and give a statement or something like that, the, the witnessing is not just the, the fact that you see it, it's also bearing testimony. So in the New Testament, when Christ called us to be witnesses, and particularly when he called the apostles, ye shall be witnesses, well, they were not only people who saw it firsthand, but primarily their job was to give testimony to it. 
So Peter can give testimony to this because he's seen Christ's sufferings, and I, I rather think that both of these points, I don't know that we have to decide between these. You read the interpreters and commentators, and they talk about these ideas in verse number one. Seems to me like perhaps the language is flexible enough to encompass both thoughts. Uh, certainly the point that I have there on B is, is latent in the context, but there's something more. Peter might be referring, and probably is, I, I really tend to think this, to the transfiguration. Um, this is really important to see the sequence of events that takes place there. So I have some verses here for you. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And what's that next word? And do what? Suffer. So Peter's talking about that, being someone who beheld that, witnessed that. And he says, suffer many things. Well, that didn't agree quite with Peter's concept at that point. This, this um, idea of submission to Christ's authority wasn't exactly, um, he hadn't mastered that point yet. Not that we ever do, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, far be it from you, Lord. And I've, I've often thought, you know, when you read that verse, I, I think you could not do violence to the meaning of this as if you said, not far be it from you, Lord, but far be it from me. It didn't jive with his concept of what he was thinking about as a follower of Christ and of the kingdom and the glory then, didn't see the principle of the suffering coming first, Jesus reinforces that context. Verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this, this goes over hard for them. This isn't what they're expecting. So in the very next chapter, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, his brother, led them up, a high mountain by themselves, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So, they clearly saw Christ's sufferings, but Peter can draw on something else. Only three could, Peter, James, and John. He, he trots that out here. I think it's very appropriate because he's in a position to give a very forceful testimony because He's not just seen the cross. He's not just seen the other sufferings. He's seen the glory that awaits when Jesus appears in his glory, as we read in chapter 4, verse 13. It gives a little more impact and a little more weight to the statement that he's making. All right, we need to move to the next thought here. In verses 2 and 3, he begins to give the exhortations to these men who are in service. So, folks, here's the thing. We don't, want to do, we don't want to not acknowledge that, obviously, the key thrust in these verses, he is talking to pastors. Does that mean that we can't make an application of many of these principles? Because if we find ourselves in service as <clears throat> pastors are in service, and we occupy many positions, a local church uh, calls for many positions of service, and I think you'll find these, these principles are very appropriate for pastors. It's appropriate, I think, to call on pastors to be exemplary because they're kind of out in front. <clears throat> but at the same point, it's really not appropriate for us to say, well, that's for the pastor. And I don't know about you, and you can disagree if you want. It don't, won't hurt my feelings at all. But I've always felt that the way that we should take these passages in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, where they map out what we call the qualifications for an elder or a pastor or for a deacon. You know, you really don't find much, if anything, there that is only applicable to pastors. It's really applicable to all of us. 
I think what he's really saying is, just be sure when you get some from someone from your pastor that he's not below the expectation that you have of a Christian servant. So in the same way, you have that here, and Peter outlines three ways to inspire others to model Christ's humility. This is where I would challenge you. I have it in the points. Whether I have time to talk about it or not, you can follow up if you want. But each of these three things, we're going to see how Christ uh, is an expiring, <laughs> an expiring, we're expiring, thank goodness he's not, uh, but an inspiring example of humility. So let's look at the first one. It says, first of all, don't be grudging in your service. Don't do it because you have to. That's what this word means. It, it's a word that, that is speaking of compulsion. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, not by force. Um, I have the reference there, I think, Matthew 27, 32. That's, that's the verse that talks about Simon of Cyrene. Remember, they found him, and the Bible says, him they compelled to bear the cross. In other words, he was impressed. Not impressed in the sense, oh, wow, this is great. He was impressed into service. Those soldiers grabbed him and said, you will do this. And it's really important for us when we think about the service, someone asks you to do something, if you only agree to do that begrudgingly, only because you feel like, oh, I guess I have to. Well, this isn't going to, you know, I mean, there might be times when we do that to get by for a season. Somebody says, well, I'll take something for a month or something like that till you find someone else. But our reason for serving the Lord should be one of being willing and not by being forced. I have the verse from Philemon. I'm attracted to this verse to give you at least this one, <clears throat> simply because it uses both of these words. The very same two words that Peter uses here are used in this verse. He says, but I preferred, this is Paul talking about asking for Onesimus to Philemon, who was his master, and he says, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, in other words, to rob yourself of the blessing, really, but of your own accord. So, not by compulsion, but of your own accord. So, we have to be careful that we're not in service because someone else called us to it. You know, you just have to really be careful that you sense the Lord leading you when you, you enter into service. And certainly that is true of Christ. I think I did give you these, by the way, I intentionally worded that that way because I think of that gospel song, A Volunteer for Jesus. Some of you, I think, know that song. I asked the question, are we volunteers for Jesus? He certainly was for us. Think of what this says in Hebrews chapter 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared. It's like we're given the opportunity to get in on a dialogue that takes place between the Father and the Son. And he says, then I said, verse 7, uh, behold, I come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Christ certainly is a, an inspiring, uh, his humility in this sense of being submissive to the Father's will, gladly agreeing to come into this world and do those things that were necessary for our redemption it is uh, what's inspiring in all of this. And it's inspiring when we see it in other people, too that they're glad to shoulder these things. I mean, it's a, many burdens are often involved, particularly when you think of the work of a pastor. Here's the second thing. 
second part, second exhortation of three that he gives. Don't be dishonest in your service. And this word, dishonest, it has the idea of shameful gain, or let's put it this way. If you're in any way in contact with funds or finances, you never want to do anything that, if someone looked into that later, you would be ashamed of, or that would draw a question to it. If there are any two things that get people in the, in the ministry into trouble quicker than anything else, it's moral issues and financial issues. And of course, I don't have to belabor the fact that how many of these television figures do we see? I'm thinking of one whose first name starts with J and the last name starts with O. This is my attempt at generosity this morning. But I mean, there are, <laughs> there are so many people like that. You know, you see them riding around in these, these expensive airplanes. You see this expensive dress. You, you think to yourself, these people are, I mean, I, I guess we can't fully and finally judge their, their hearts, but they don't give a good appearance, that's for sure. One should never go into Christian service with the expectation of being wealthy. I will say, however, that I think this sort of bears out. You know, Paul makes the comment in 1 Timothy 5, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Remember that verse? And that word honor there is also a word that talks about financial compensation. And Paul's very clear on this. He talks about the fact that you shouldn't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. So I think that maybe the underlying thought here is also that Probably these people justly deserve some compensation for their efforts, and so therefore the exhortation is appropriate. Don't be doing it for the money. Don't be doing it for gain. Don't be doing it because you might be able to use this as a way to get ahead. And as I say here, once again, Jesus is our example. He's the polar opposite of that when you think about his statement that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And <clears throat> folks, in all of this, I mean, you, you shouldn't think if you're going into Christian service that you're taking a vow of poverty. You might be if you go to work for some organizations. You might not know you're taking the vow of poverty. But on the one hand, you should have every expectation that your needs are met if you're going into pastoral work. That doesn't mean that there aren't contexts in which maybe the church can't afford that at the time or sacrifices have to be made. It doesn't mean that some men are not bivocational. And, and I think about the people I've known over the years to do that kind of thing, and I've always thought to myself, what a sacrifice, what a labor of love that you, you love the work of the Lord so much, and it can't take care of you, and it can't meet all of your needs, that you're willing to go out here and do this second job as well. To me, that's commendable, but not the ideal. You want to be able to give a man freedom from that kind of anxiety and care so that he can devote his energies and attention fully to the ministry. Got to move to the third exhortation. He says, don't do it in an abusive way. Instead, be exemplary. We see this here in our text. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Word translated domineering is really interesting. It's a compound of the word that means Lord, but with an intensive preposition on the front of it so that it's it's the idea of being overbearing. 
It's the idea of being domineering, as I think we have it. Do we have it translated domineering here or dominating? Domineering. So dominating people would be another way to look at it, or just plain bossy. And that's not what the Lord wants. And it's always well to remember, too, that Jesus is the true Lord. And look at these verses. Again, seeing the example of Christ, his humility here. He says to the, the apostles in training, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, that's what you expect in the world. That's that word is used. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Good to remind ourselves of that every so often. Whosoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whosoever would be first among you shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One little final thought as we leave these exhortations. If you think about these three and you ask yourself, why did the Holy Spirit lead Peter to name those three? Couldn't you give ten exhortations to pastors? Well, sure. Um, we could always say he didn't have space but for three, but probably a better idea is, is an interesting observation is that these are the areas that seem to be pitfalls. These are the areas that seem to trip up. Lots of times people who are in pastoral work. Um, people get themselves into trouble with finances, um, people get themselves into trouble by being overbearing and losing sight of the fact that Christ is the chief shepherd and you're nothing more than an under-shepherd and your people are not there for you to boss but rather to lead lovingly and as a servant and people get themselves into trouble by being in a place that God hasn't really called them. And so any of these things are, are good to think about. Now let's go to the last. And Peter closes with some encouragement, and I've said this before, and I think no one would disagree with that. Encouragement is, encouragement is something that has a, in some, in some respects at least, it has a short shelf life. Because if you get some today, you'll need some more tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things. It's like almost like your daily bread. You know, you need it every day, and... Uh, I was interested in something Brother McCaleb said last Sunday evening. When he's Monday, Monday morning was his quitting time. And I think that most people who have been in the ministry understand that sentiment exactly. And I don't know what it is. It's strange. But there's just something about coming down off the, the quote-unquote high of the Lord's Day where you're doing all this stuff and then landing on Monday morning and thinking, well, that wasn't so hot. <laughs> you know, and, and then being discouraged about the whole thing. So uh, it happens a lot. Encouragement is very appropriate. And he comes back to this thought, circles to his opening thought, because he says, we'll be partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. Are there rewards for service? Yes, there are. And, you know, in this particular case, I'm sure some of you have been exposed to notes and readings where... They talk about the five crowns that are described in the Bible, and some people get really specific about this and nail this stuff you know, down within an inch of its life. And I, I sort of suspect that maybe that's a good sermon, but doesn't completely fly. 
So in that particular instance, if you look at verse 5, this has been called the shepherd's crown. And I always kind of wondered coming up when I first heard that, well, does that mean that nobody else gets this crown of glory? Because it seems the way he talks about it is a general sense. So I think it's probably being a little bit too restrictive. Um, I think you probably have, for those of you who remember studying this in, a, in original languages, you probably have what you would refer to here as the appositional genitive, where the crown is glory. But rather than worry, bogging down with that, he's just simply reminding, look, any sacrifice you make in service, Jesus sees a cup of cold water that you give in his name. Jesus doesn't miss anything you do. And I think some of those things are going to be the sweetest because if you think about it, if you're in Christian service of any kind, you probably have a list of the things that you are thinking you're going to get rewarded for. No, come on, just be honest. We, that's how we think. You know, we think, well, I did this, I did this, I did this. And I'm not sure. Maybe some of those things won't be the greatest. I think the sweetest are going to be getting to glory and the Lord saying, remember that situation there? Or a hundred things that we never saw. He never saw fit to reveal that to us. But yet, that was something that he used. And God doesn't miss any of that. He's, he's never unfaithful. People are. But the writer of the Hebrews reminds us, he's never unfaithful to forget your work and labor of love, in that ye have ministered unto the saints and do minister. So even if you don't feel like the saints are very responsive, the Lord notices, and we will share in his glory, and I don't know what special he has for this particular act of service, but I know that all believers will share in his glory, and I, I want to say one more thing before we leave this, and that is that he calls it the unfading crown of glory. And in so doing, he uses a word in the original that's kind of interesting because it's from the name of a flower, the amaranth. And the reason I bring this up is simply because the ancients regarded that flower as a symbol of immortality because it, it was thought to be unfading. It was very impervious to fading. And even when it did fade, if you got it some moisture, it would come back. And uh, so this is the word he uses to describe this. And uh, I think about the fact, folks, and it's a reminder what he's telling us here. It's a reminder that so many of the things of, in this world, so many of the things that we tend to want to live for are truly fading. They don't last. They're all a part of this temporal scene. And they won't be around. But service for Christ will. So, well, there's more I have here to talk about, but let's move on to the last, and or to the next. <laughs> We're ready for the next one. There we go. All right, so lesson 13, turn your paper over, or um, if you do that. The minute you start talking about humility and service, what, what do you think about? Well, service is with people, right? That's the whole idea. And so it doesn't surprise us, maybe, that a companion of humility and service is humility in relationships. 
humility in service and humility in relationships are directly correlated because you can't well serve people if you, if you operate with them in pride. And that, that is so often a problem. So we're going to look at two things here today. And the first one of them is the people in our lives. And then we're going to look at the other thought here, uh, the practices in our lives that come out of this. So we all have people in our lives. And if you're serving, you certainly have people in your life. Um, my thought is, is that this is where the test of humility comes in your relationship with others. Because if you're just sitting at home watching the TV or if you're just sitting at home reading a book, no one's really putting you in a situation where you have this problem. But boy, you get out there on the road. I, I pulled out of our street this morning and you know, we just have a, one of those places where you pull out and you can look both ways and they can be clear but particularly to the left, there's a curve not too far down. And it can be completely, there can be no one there when you pull out. But they come around that curve so fast that they're on you in a heartbeat. Particularly when they're not going the speed limit. This guy in a red Ford pickup truck, I mean, I pull out and I went a little bit slower just because I saw somebody coming from the opposite direction and I didn't want him to think I was going to pull out into his lane. The next thing I know, this guy's right on my bumper blaring his horn. And I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Because I thought, well, I don't see anybody over here. I don't see anybody over here. Where's that horn coming from? And then I looked in the rearview mirror. My wife says, there's a guy behind you. He's upset with you for being slow. There's a test to your humility. Because what's the first thing that you're thinking? Well, for me, it's that jerk. <laughs> uh, anyway. So then you're thinking, okay, I'm on my Sunday, way to Sunday school class to talk about humility. That's not too good. That's where the test comes, right? So in all of our relationships, that's where it comes. And if you're thinking about humility, it's like love in the sense that it's a word, but how you see it isn't an action. So in our relationships with people, what's the action by which humility is displayed? And Peter singles out submission. It's actually, um, depending on which version you're using, some of you carrying the King James, you find the word uh, submission there twice. If you have the ESV, you only find it once. It's a little difference in the background of the manuscripts. But likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So there's the first one, be subject. Um, be, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Uh, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The King James says, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. So it, it takes the, by the way, it takes the passive voice in the interpretation of, we have here in the ESV, clothe, your, clothe, clothe yourselves. Um, could it very easily just as well be a passive, be clothed with humility. But there's twice there, depending on which version you're using, where that that idea of submission comes up. Now, Peter talks to young, younger people, first of all. This is not younger Christians. This is younger people. And you notice that it's a comparative, not to be technical with grammar, but young is the adjective and younger is the comparative. And the reason I bring this out is because this term is easily capable of being used of young adults, 
just as much as, so it, it shouldn't be that young people think they're being singled out. But that being said, if you think back, if you're, if you're a young person now, or if you think back to when you were, you know, that's when we have our first great battle with authority. Pride and independence want to assert themselves in our youth. We struggle with authority. So it's kind of interesting, you have the example of the prodigal son. The younger, it says, was the one. He just chafed under those rules. And both he and his brother had the same problem. It just manifested itself in different ways. For the younger, pride made him want to chafe under those rules. For the older one, pride made him want to be all the more dogged in his submission to them so that he could claim, as he did one day, I've been here all along and I've never broken one of your rules. But I think we recognize this. But also, we have to recognize that authority is unavoidable in life everywhere you go. So, you know, when you're 80, it's still true. Authority is still woven into the very fabric of life. And so the encouragement here is to learn, be aware of this pitfall and be aware of this lesson early in life for the simple reason that if we don't recognize that it's a stumbling block, if we don't get a handle on it, if we don't realize that we're called to be submissive to the authority that God has ordained, that just carries over and then we have problems all through life. And Peter includes all of you, so it really doesn't matter. I mean, he, he, he speaks to the younger ones, but then he comes along and says, yea, all of you be clothed, uh, submit yourselves one to another, be clothed with humility. Why does he do that? Paul does the same thing in Ephesians 5.21. I'm not going to turn in the interest of time, but 21 comes before he gets into this section on husbands and wives. Before he ever talks about wives being in submission to their husbands, he says to everyone, submitting one to another, or to one another, out of reverence. So even if your relationship with someone doesn't involve authority, in other words, you're just this person's peer, um, they're not a, in a role that, that has authority in the relationship, you still owe them respect. And that's what our society, don't you, don't you see this, folks? It just it grieves me that, that our, our society is just so completely lacking in this. There's just no respect anywhere, or very little anymore. And so I wanted to point out a, a beautiful word picture that's involved in the language that Peter chooses to use. I think this is one of those times when you see a balance between knowing that the Holy Spirit inspires and also uses at the same point the author's human, his personality and his background. Because when he says be clothed with humility, that's a word, that verb, the noun that comes from that same root is, the, is a slave's apron. Maybe the best way you could envision that would be to think of a blacksmith. And a blacksmith puts on that farrier's apron. Why does he do that? Well, it gets nasty. And you're going to get that horse's hoof and put it up, and you're going to dig the, you know what, out of it, the crud, to get down there and see, the, see what you need to take that tool and do your scraping work there. So the farrier has a, an apron. And in the ancient world, a slave would have an apron. Uh, many of them would. So I think Peter is deliberately referring back to 
a time in his life when Christ was trying to teach him this very example of humility. And he didn't totally master it on that occasion. It says, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and took a towel, not an apron, but a towel, tied it around his waist, and then later said, here's what I was doing. I was giving you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So that's encouraging. Um, in a church context, um, I, I just make this observation from years of ministry in observing something that I was trying to say earlier. Most problems occur with adults that never learned this earlier in life. And so that, that's why it's really important for us, because whether it's a church context or any other, you meet up with authority. Some people are jerks, there's no question about it, but it doesn't lessen our responsibility to do right. So what practices come out of this? Because we have all of three minutes to talk about three things. Um, three exhortations show us where this humility begins. I think this is the most important observation I have for you because when you look at the exhortations that unfold, humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may ex uh, at the proper time exalt you, casting all your care. It all starts, it all focuses on God. Why is that? Because if, you're not, if you don't have this right with God, you don't have much chance of getting it right with people. So first of all, recognize God's authority. That humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God is an Old Testament expression for his power. Recognize God, God's authority. The first thing is recognize God's authority. This all comes out at a, at a point because, well, we'll get to that. Secondly, or we recognize God's authority. Why? Because God resists. Now, the word for submit and the word for resist are related in the sense that they have the same root but a different preposition on the front, and it changes the meaning drastically. To submit is to order or arrange yourself under, but to resist is to arrange yourself against. You would think maybe of setting the battle in array. So the king goes out, he sets his troops in array against the opposing force across from him. This is what it says God does when we're proud and we resist the authority because ultimately the authority that we find in life's relationships, all authority, number one, comes from God. Number two, God has ordained the relationships in which we find ourselves in life. So to resist those things and to only think about the jerk is to lose sight of the fact that God is in control. I don't like our government in Washington. I'm sure that no one here holds that opinion. But at the same point, I'm an American citizen. God has put me in this place, and I have to have a certain submission that God requires of me, and I'm not to be disrespectful. So God ordains these things. We have to go. Next, wait on God's time that he may exalt you in due season. And have you ever noticed that God isn't in a hurry? We are slow to learn. And then lastly, trust in God's care. He knows our struggles. So in the course of this, you know, you find that you're dealing with a jerk. Well, God knows. So what can you do about that? Well, you can attempt to do whatever you can do in a relationship with someone and try to rectify it as best you can, you should. But beyond that, what do you do? Go home at night and cast all that on God. 
Let him shoulder that burden. He cares. We need to close. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we've had to look into your word. And even though, Lord, there is so much more, and uh, undoubtedly we could have had a better look at this, a better presentation, yet still you are here. Your word is powerful and living. Your spirit works in our lives. Help us to see those things that were from you this morning for us and to be encouraged and to be even more in compliance with these principles that help us better show the world and show our fellow believers Christ in us, the hope of glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.